podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast. Have you been listening? Do you know what sport we're actually playing? Whoa, 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 whoa. I was number nine. Don't be putting me down at number 11. Back in the day, I defeated Dwayne The Rock Johnson twice. The Paralympics almost has more power than the Olympics ever will be. I'm not really a fun kind of guy. doesn't really like people. Come on then, let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast, the only podcast in the UK which is hosted by autistic teenagers who interview some of the biggest names within the world of sport. From world champions, World Cup winners, international athletes, Ryder Cup golfers, Ashes heroes and many other sportsmen and women, we delve deep into their sporting career, the highs and the lows and what makes them one of the best athletes in their sport. But that's enough for me, I'm going to hand you over to the stars of the show, Tom and Avatar, who host the podcast, and I'll let them introduce today's guest. See you later. The TWS Sports Podcast is hosted by autistic pupils from Tattnall School in the UK. Our school is for autistic children and young adults, and we have set this podcast up to provide our pupils with a fantastic opportunity to develop a range of skills whilst interviewing top sportsmen and women from a variety of different sports. Joining us today on the TWS Sports Podcast is a former Premier League footballer who has played for England and is a Southampton legend. Welcome to the podcast, Matt Letizia. Hi boys, good to meet you both. Good to see you too. So we like to start our podcast off with some quick fire questions. Are you ready? I'm ready, go for it. Best you have ever played uh, with? Um, I'd probably say it would have to be Alan Shearer at Southampton. Um, best friend in football? My best friend in football is probably Francis Benali. Who is the most famous person in your phone book? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> um, oh, my goodness. Um, I would probably say. Oh, it's probably Gary Neville, I reckon. If you could trade lives with anyone for a day, who would it be and why? Oh, trade lives with anyone for a day. Uh, I would trade lives with um, the Prime Minister of the UK. And the reason, for, the reason for that would be that I could then implement some laws that actually benefit the people. Go on, Matt, I'm going to jump in. If you could implement one law, what would it be? If I could impact one law... Uh, it would be that the um, the law on freedom of speech will never, ever be touched again in the history of the world. Before we start, I just wanted to give a shout out to the Daily American podcast. This is another great podcast where Dan interviews people from around the world who have very interesting stories of struggle in life, overcoming challenges and battling through tough times. So please go and check out the Daily American Podcast. Growing up as a child, did you always want to be a footballer and how did you get into football? Um, Yeah, I I can remember wanting to be a footballer from about the age of seven or eight years of age. Um, And the way I got into it uh, was I was playing for, I grew up in Guernsey um, and I was playing for the Guernsey under 15 representative team and we had a tour of Hatchet. And one of the games was being played in a recreation park in Southampton. And I was spotted in that game by a 
Southampton scout who just happened to be there watching. And I was invited over for trials at the age of uh, nearly 15, I think I was. Um, and that was where it, it went from there. I came over for a week and I was immediately signed as an associated schoolboy. Uh, and just over a year later, uh, I was then offered um, a place as an apprentice or on the YTS scheme as it was back then. Um, you joined Southampton at the age of 17. What are your moments of um, jo- um, joining? What are your memories of joining um, well, my memories of joining as a as a YTS player when I was sixteen were um, just how in, incredibly hard work it was um, with the fitness training, the, the levels of fitness that you needed to be to be a professional footballer. Um, so that was the the first thing I learned very quickly. Um, and then I turned professional uh, the following October when I when I on my eighteenth birthday. Um, but I'd already made my my debut in the first team before I'd actually turned professional. So. Um, my, my memories of that were were being incredibly excited that I was now an official professional footballer. I signed a two-year contract. Uh, this is in um, 1986. Um, and that two-year contract, I still remember to this day, uh, the first year of that contract was for uh, £100 a week. And the second year of that contract, I had a massive rise to £120 a week. <laughs> you had some great players at Southampton when you joined, such as Peter Shilton, Joe Jordan, Mark Wright, and many more. What was it like in the dressing room with these players when you were still a teenager? Um, it, it was pretty intimidating, if I'm honest, to, to go into that changing room um, with you know established internationals who I'd kind of grown up watching them play football and all of a sudden I'm, I'm in the changing room with them. And, uh, it, was, it was pretty bizarre, if I'm honest. I was actually Joe Jordan's apprentice, so I was responsible for cleaning Joe Jordan's boots and making sure that they were spotless every morning um, because if they weren't, he would let you know about it. Um, and I also cleaned the boots of David Armstrong, uh, who was also a, a very good first division footballer. And um, yeah, I, I, I do remember being a little bit overawed by the by the names in the changing room when I first turned up at Southampton. Yeah, it was an amazing experience though. In the 1989 to 1990 season, you won the PFA Young Player of the Year. That must have been a great season for you. Um, yeah, that was kind of my first um, real consistent season of being a, a first-team player at, at Southampton. I'd kind of been in and out of the team as a teenager. Um, and this particular season, uh, you know, I turned 21 uh, that year and it was, my, it was my best season that I'd had to date. Um, I was... I actually didn't start the season in the team because Danny Wallace uh, was still at Southampton then uh, and we sold him to Manchester United very early on in that season uh, and that allowed me the chance to become a regular in the team and I started scoring goals pretty quickly. Uh, I became the club's penalty taker that season as well um, and I think we were given eight penalties that year. So uh, that helped to contribute to the 24 goals that I got that season and um, and helped me get to to be the young player of the year. It was lovely. It was one of my teammates as well was also nominated in the same year. Uh, and I think we finished first and third, I think. Uh, and that was Rodney Wallace who got 23 goals that season. In 1992, the Football League was redeveloped into the Premier League. As a player, what changed for you when that happened? Um, that's, that's an interesting question, actually. A really good question because I don't remember too much 
um, actually changing in terms of our job on a day-to-day basis. There was there was nothing really that, that was any different. Uh, the only thing that was different is that we were now going to have more televised football matches. Uh, there was going to be live games on the television. It was all jazzed up a little bit with entertainment around the games and uh, and there was a, a bit of a bit more of a buzz when it came to a match day when the when the live cameras were at the ground so that was kind of the biggest difference that that I noticed um we certainly we certainly in those early stages didn't notice a difference in our pay packets let me just jump in Matt. so did you notice so back in the like eight, late 80s early 90s you watched it on match of the day and unless you were at the ground you didn't really watch much football yes. Yeah. Did it change for you in terms of was there more pressure knowing that it was it was televised and did you were you a player to go home and watch yourselves back on the TV and watch the games? Um, so, uh, it actually changed for me for the better because um, I actually looked forward to the televised games more than the games that weren't on the telly. Um, I think that that might just be you know, because of a, a confidence thing. Um, I, I was always pretty self-confident and wanted to to show as many people as possible what I could do on a football pitch. Um, and so for that reason, I, I, I did, I really looked forward to the, the television games more so. Uh, you make your day, you make your debut for England again, Denmark in 1994. What, what was that like to play for England? Yeah. I mean, that was, um, you know, one of, one of the most amazing nights of my life really because as a kid as I said from seven or eight years of age all I wanted to do was be a professional footballer and my other ambition in life was to play for England you know it was kind of my my driving passion in life and um and that that great night in 1994 uh, I managed to achieve my my childhood ambition um, I had all my family up in the stand you know mum and dad were up there brothers and it was just it was just absolutely fantastic and I, and I loved um was incredibly proud to be able to, to at the end of that game, actually take my shirt that I've worn and give it to my parents because they'd supported me incredibly um, through growing up uh, and were, were always there um, to give me lifts everywhere to football matches and, and just um, words of encouragement all the time. So uh, to be able to, to take my shirt and to give it to my parents was one of my, my best times in my life. You played eight times for England. Do you think you deserved more England caps. Um, yeah, I think most players that that play for England will probably go. Yeah, I should have played more uh, because that's the kind of mindset that you have. That's the self confidence you have. Um, I was very proud of my eight caps. Um, uh, they're they're actually in my office here. They're just all up on the wall up there. Um, so uh, it would have been nice to have got more, but at the end of the day, you can only do what you can do. Uh, you can do the best that you can for your club, which is what I try to do. Uh, and if the England manager does, doesn't feel that you're good enough to play, then you don't play. Uh, and so, when something like that is is out of your hands, you know you can only control the controllables. You, I could only control how well I played for Southampton. Everything else after that, it was in somebody else's hands to choose whether or not they they wanted to pick me. Um, uh, and so, when it's out of your hands like that, you can't really be too worried about things it's uh, you just need to do what you can do and hope for the best after that um we've got a viewer question here uh sure. do you watch yourself on tv and analyze your performances um i don't think i did um watch myself back in the day i, I used to watch the game back if i scored um <laughs> so 
<laughs> so I, I did. If if I was scoring goals, I would definitely watch the game. Not necessarily the whole game. I would just forward to the bits where I've done like really good things. Um, and it, it sounds like an egotistical thing, um, but it's actually not. It's it's something a bit more than that. It, it's uh, almost positive reinforcement of what you can do in life. Um, and so whenever I went through uh, spells of perhaps not playing so well and not scoring goals. I used to get the video recorder out back in the day because obviously DVDs weren't around back then. And uh, and I used to watch videos of myself scoring goals just to remind myself constantly that this is what I can do, positive reinforcement and and just uh, giving myself, you know, really good memories of, of what I could do before I went out and trained, before I went out and played matches. You played for England with amazing players such as Gaza, Simon, Stuart Pearce, John Barnes, Alan Shearer, and Shearer, sorry, and many more. What was it like to play with those players? And do you have any funny stories about your time with England? Um, I, obviously, it was it was quite brief my time with England. Um, I, I don't recall anything too funny happening, to be honest, because it was a very serious environment. Um, but yeah, playing alongside those players was was pretty special, you know, and. and Actually, most of those players that you that you spoke of now, I, I could call most of their mates, uh, which is a really nice and cool thing to be able to do. You know, I had a testimonial at the end of my career and I, I played the Southampton team against the next England team. Uh, and most of those players that you you named just then, they all came down and played in my testimonial match for me. Um, so, you know, that was lovely. To have players of that quality, I'd be able to pick up the phone to them and go, would you do me a favour and come down and play my testimonial? And for them to all go, yeah, of course we will, no problem at all. Um, you know that was brilliant, and Gaza was the most talented player of my generation. You know he was the he was the best player, um, and so to to have him come down and, and to be able to say I played alongside him for a brief period uh, is a pretty cool thing to have in your life. What was Gaza like as a player? And he must have been very funny to be with. <laughs> uh, yeah, he was um, he was an incredible footballer. Um, uh, I was. It was a, a real shame that he had that bad injury in the cup final um, because I think, I mean, even after that, he was still a very, very good footballer. Um, but I think if he hadn't had that injury, uh, I think we would have seen a, an even better Paul Gascoigne, to be honest. Uh, he was such a, a gifted, strong, uh, talented footballer. He pretty much had everything you wanted in a midfielder. Um, uh, and so um, he was very difficult to play against. Uh uh, and yes, he was a he was a proper character. He had a heart of gold. He would do anything for anybody if you asked him. He really would. Um, I think he he surrounded himself with some of the wrong people, if I'm honest, um, and didn't do himself any favours in that regard. Um, but yes, he was a, a real character. And uh, uh, I remember I remember playing in a in a testimonial match at White Hart Lane. I think it was Peter Shilton's international testimonial match, uh, and I had to get to train station after the game to to get back to Southampton and and Gaz said oh he said don't worry he said I'll give you a lift and um so I was like oh yeah that's cool and so uh, we walked outside the stadium and there was this massive stretch limousine out in the car park and he went here's my car jump in <laughs> and uh, and yeah so I got a lift to the train station this massive stretch limo <laughs> is is it true that Chelsea tried to sign you in 1995 for 10 million 
which would make you the most expensive English transfer at the time? Um, it was true that Chelsea were interested in buying me. I think the figure was, um, well, I, I kind of know the figure was seven million and I'll explain to you why. Um, so, um, Laurie McMenemy, who was, um, director of football at Southampton at the time, uh, took a phone call from Matthew Harding, uh, the Chelsea director who was very keen on me as a player and wanted me to go to Stamford Bridge. Uh, and so, uh, Matt had rang Laurie McMenemy up and said, oh, we want to buy Matt Letizio. Uh, and Laurie had said to him, well, sorry, he's, he's not going anywhere. We don't want to sell him. Uh, the lad's happy where he is and, uh, and we don't want to, we don't want to sell him. And, um, uh, and Laurie McMenemy turned around to Matthew Harding and said, well, I'll tell you what he said, the only way you will ever get Matt Letizio to be your player is if you buy Southampton Football Club. <laughs> and, and so uh, and so Matthew Harding jokingly said to Laurie he said uh, oh he said um, he said that's a good idea he said I could change his name to Chelsea on Sea." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so this the, the, the conversation ended and then Laurie tells me that a, a couple of days later a cheque arrived in the post uh, from Matthew Harding and the cheque was for seven million pounds uh, and it was made out to Chelsea on Sea. <laughs> seven million pounds Matthew Harding and uh, and the only reason I know that is because Laurie was telling me this story and Laurie had kept the cheque and he actually gave Laurie has given me the cheque and it now sits in my office oh, wow. so this is this is the uh, the cheque for seven million pounds to Chelsea <laughs> from Matthew Harding who God rest his soul passed away just about a year after that in the in the helicopter crash oh wow that's it's not very often you get to keep a cheque for seven million pounds. <laughs> no, and it's the only time in my life I'll ever see that money. <laughs> you remained at Southampton your whole career. Was there ever a time where you thought you should have moved away to win trophies or to improve your chances of playing for England? Um, to be honest, I don't have any regrets about the decisions that I made in my career, I, I could have joined Spurs in 1990, um, uh, that, and that was my team as a boy. So that was a that was a big draw for me. Um, uh, but I chose not to do that, uh, and to this day, I don't have any regrets about making the decisions I made to stay at Southampton my whole career. I've, I've so warmly received every time I go down to St Mary's. Uh, it's such a lovely feeling to be able to walk around this city and, and people still have respect for the decisions that you made in your career. Um, and yeah, it might have, to be honest, it might have cost me uh, some England caps. It might have cost me some medals. You don't know that for sure. Um, but even with that in mind, I still have no regrets. You had a great record from the penalty spot. How gutted are you to just miss that one penalty? <laughs> um not really that gutted, to be honest. Uh, I'm incredibly proud that I took 48 penalties and scored 47 of them. Um, it's a pretty impressive record. Um, and I think it's nice that Mark Crosley is able to, you know, have some glory of his own and be able to say that he was the only man that saved one of my penalties. So um, I think the, the thing I was probably more annoyed about, rather than missing the penalty, I'm actually more annoyed that I missed the rebound because Mark actually parried it straight back out to me. And from about seven yards from my left foot, I managed to put the rebound over the crossbar. And I was more embarrassed that I missed the rebound than I was about missing the penalty. So, uh, 
but no, I'm, I'm very proud of my penalty record. I, I don't have any regrets that, uh, that I missed just the one. Do you, do you think that penalty record will ever be broken? Oh yeah, I'm sure it will. Records are always there to be broken. Somebody at some point will become better as we, as we do as, as humans, we, we get bigger and better and stronger as the years go by. And, um, you know, it's very rare that a, a record stays in place for, uh, for all time. If you look at all the athletics records, it's, um, you know, they, they tend to get broken every few years and, um, you know, the occasional one will stand for a long time, but eventually they'll all get beat. Uh, you, you left Southampton in 2002. Why do you decide to retire? Um, so yeah, I was 33 when I decided to retire. And the reason was I was picking up quite a lot of injuries, um, at the time. And it was really frustrating not being able to perform to the level that I used to be able to perform to. Um, and when it got to, when it got to the point at 33 years of age and my body was kind of breaking down a little bit, um, I, I didn't want to be a burden or a charity case at Southampton and, and and you know stick around and sign another contract or go and drop down the leagues and, and play in the lower leagues when I wasn't really able to do myself justice um I didn't think that was fair so I decided at 33 that I was going to go out at the top um Southampton fans gave you the nickname Lee God that is a pretty cool nickname <laughs> it is a pretty cool nickname um and uh one that actually um, caused me to receive a few letters actually from um, some religious leaders uh, who actually wrote to me at the Dell um, when the nickname first started. It was getting quite popular. Uh, and they wrote to me asking me if I would actually go on television and denounce the fact that I am not actually God. And um, <laughs> uh, and I, I found that a little bit strange that they couldn't really see the joke in it all. But, uh, but no, it's it, it a pretty cool nickname. I, I could think of a lot worse I could have had. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it true in 2009 you offered to help Sam- Southampton after they got relegated why didn't this happen and have you ever been interested in working at Southampton since um, well the first time I actually I actually offered at Southampton to help out was in 2005 when Harry we'd been relegated into the championship Harry Redknapp had left uh, I think we were sat kind of bottom half of the championship at the time and me and Franny Benali actually offered to to perhaps go in and try and help out as joint managers um, and um, the chairman at the time Rupert Lowe wasn't really wasn't really interested in that happening me and Franny didn't have any coaching qualifications we were just kind of offering out the goodness of our heart to try and help out the football club really um, so that didn't happen and then in 2009 when the club went into administration um uh, a gentleman came to me um, who he told me was heading up a, a consortium that was looking to to purchase Southampton Football Club and, and would I help out? Um, so I did. Yeah, I helped out, put my name to it, and, and tried to tried to help out. Um, but unfortunately, the the guy actually turned out to be not a particularly genuine um, guy who's who was probably looking to uh, to to make a few quid out of uh, doing a dodgy deal. Um, so in the end, it was it was pretty good that Marcus Lieber came in at the uh, at the last minute and, uh, and decided to to buy the football club outright. And um, obviously, we were in the in League One uh, eventually, uh, and we managed to 
to find a way to bounce back um, using the the Liebherr money. And um, I think the club will always be eternally grateful to the Lieber family for everything they did for the club. Matt, when you retired, was coaching or becoming a manager ever a thing for you? And even now, is it something you, you'd like to do in the future or, or not? Uh, no, the coaching and manager thing um, never really interested me. If, I, if I'm going to do something in my life, it's got to be something that I'm passionate about and I enjoy. Um, and I never enjoyed coaching. You know, I've, I've done a few things where I've been asked to to do a coaching session for kids, and um, uh, and it actually stresses me out. I don't I don't enjoy um, the, the lead up to it, the thought of uh, of actually having to think up sessions and put sessions on. Um, and so I never really fancied doing that as a job, if I'm honest. Occasionally, I've I've gone in and I might have been watching training somewhere and just just interjected on a, on a couple of points that I've seen, but it, it was never really something I wanted to get into on a full-time basis. You said in your autobiography that placed a bet on a match you were involved in. What was that, and do you regret it now? Oh yeah, uh, I regret it hugely. And the reason I put it in my book was to was to try and warn any other footballers um, uh, to to not be quite so stupid, um, if I'm honest. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I didn't I didn't place the bet. Uh, it was other people that that had placed the bet, and um, it was uh, a spread betting thing back in the '90s where you could bet on the first when the first throw-in would happen in a game. Um, so you could bet that it could happen really quickly, or you could bet that it wouldn't happen until a bit later on. Um, and so one of my teammates had had some mates who were uh, who were going to bet on this particular game of Southampton that it was going to be a, a throw in really on really early on in the game. Um, and so the idea was that we would get the kickoff and kick the ball out of play straight away from the kickoff. Um, and uh, so it was a, it's kind of not kind of a match fixing situation if you, it's not affecting the. the the match, if you like, um, but it was a, a situation where people could earn some money from it. Um, and so I actually was the one that was meant to keep the ball out. And, I, and, you know, it was probably fate. It was probably my conscience telling me that this isn't the right thing to do, but I didn't kick it hard enough to kick it out of play. Um, and, um, and yeah, it, it, it didn't transpire that anybody uh, won any money out of it, um, which uh, thankfully um, I learned my lesson. We didn't, we didn't ever try that again. Uh, and yes, it was. It was. It was a stupid thing that I regret now looking back. But at the time, kind of thought it was just a bit of a laugh. Um, and yeah, I didn't really realise the serious implications of it. You joined Sky Sport in two thousand four. Has a uh, pendant pendant on school soccer. soccer Saturday. What was it like to work on that show? Um, yeah, I had. Uh, I think I ended up having 15 years under contract at, at Sky. I did a couple of years before that as well, which uh, where I was just kind of filling in when other people were off on holidays and stuff. Um, but it was a, a fantastic show to be involved in. Um, Jeff Stelling is probably the, the best sports presenter I think you'll ever see. He's just been phenomenal for that show. Uh, and obviously, he's just last week announced that he's going to retire at the end of the season, which I think will make the show very difficult to... Um, uh, uh, to, to make better next season because I, I pity the person who has to try and follow Jeff. He's been that good in it. Uh, and I made some great friends, you know, through those years with, with Phil Thompson and Charlie Nicholas and Paul Merson. 
all guys who I kind of knew a little bit, but who uh, who we got to be great mates, and we used to spend six hours every Saturday afternoon just looking at ways to take the mickey out of each other, wind each other up, um, and, and provide some some entertainment and some insights into into the world of football. Uh, and hopefully, we did that, and um, you know, we had, we had a good run at it. You made a great team with Jeff Stelling, Pete Paul Merson, Charlie Nicholas, and Phil Thompson. What was it like to work with them? Uh, I think the, the whole working relationship was was brilliant because we were so comfortable with each other, uh, you know, because we were we were good mates as well. That we could go on the television and we could we could have real ding dong arguments about things, um, you know. Real, you know, we had strong beliefs in the way that football should be played on decisions and things, um, uh, and so we had these these massive arguments. That we would get upset with each other during the argument, and then as soon as the the, the topic changed, it was like, all right, that's gone. Forget about that. We're all mates again now, and uh, and that's how life should be. You know, you should be able to have disagreements with people you like, and and still be able to get on with them afterwards. And uh, and I hope that's what we we showed on the program. You you left Sky Sports in 2020 after 15 years. Why did you leave? Um, I, I left because they told me to go. <laughs> Uh, it, it was as simple as that. Uh, just had a, a Zoom call one day, like we, we're on now, and uh, that was about a week before the start of last season. Um, and uh, they just said, "Sorry, the, the program's going in a different direction, and uh, you're not going to be part of it." Uh, and that was it. And that was uh, that was my uh, thank you for 15 years service. It was lovely. We read on the internet that Sky Sports wanted to be more diverse with their presenters. Do you think that is fair and should there be more diversity on the TV? Um, I think there should probably be um, the same ratio of people that there is in the country uh, should probably be represented on television. If, if television is meant to be representative of society as a whole, um, then there should be proportional representation. Um, so uh, it, you take a look at the numbers. Uh, and see what the what the ratios are and if there's massive discrepancies in those ratios then I think it should be addressed. The Henshaws Insurance Group is one of the top 100 independent insurance brokers in the country and is here to bring you peace in mind. We've been in business for over 50 years and have offices in Newport, Shrewsbury and Stafford. Our 45-plus strong team deals with both business and personal insurance, and we offer a free, no-obligation, consultations and quotations, so give us a call today. Jeff Sterling has announced that he is leaving Sky Sports. What are your thoughts about him leaving, and who do you think will replace him? Um, I, I think it will be a massive blow to, to the Soccer Saturday brand. Um, with Jeff going, I think he has pretty much been that show for the last 25 years. Um, he's it, just been a phenomenal presenter. Uh, his knowledge of football has, has been quite incredible. Um, you know, all the stats that he, that he comes out with, he researches and does a heck of a lot of research. Um, and he is a, a brilliant professional. I think it will be a tough act to follow. I think uh, Julian Warren will probably be the one that, that does follow him. Um, and uh, I'm not sure I, I, I particularly, um, if I was in Julian's shoes, I'm not sure I particularly want to do that. It's almost like following Sir Alex Ferguson to Manchester United. The next bloke that goes in after him is pretty much destined to fail. 
and you'll probably want to be the one that goes in after the bloke that goes after him. Um, and that would make it probably a, a lot easier. I don't want to jump in, Matt. So I watch Soccer Saturday every weekend and it amazes me. I don't know how. Can you give a little insight? How the, how on earth does Jeff keep up with every single score? Does he have, he must have thousands of monitors in front of him. He knows every single fact about every single club, every single player. <laughs> it seems incredible how, how he does it. Well, he does his preparation brilliantly. Uh, so that's the thing that, that sets him apart. His, his preparation is meticulous. Um, so he has an A4 sheet of paper for every division. Uh, and on that A4 sheet of paper, he's got every every fixture in that division. And then he's got little notes about all the goal scorers under each team. And as and as the goals go in, he's he's you'll notice that he's writing on his notes the whole time, trying to keep up with all the scores and the goal scorers. Um, in his earpiece, he also has obviously a producer and a director telling him what's happening, where we're going next. Um, and then for uh, a little bit of assistance, uh, and it is only a little bit because a lot of this stuff he knows himself. Uh, so in his earpiece, he does have a statistician. Um, and so he can be fed some of the lines that he comes out with um, when somebody scored a goal. Um, but, uh, you know, I think for for the vast majority of it, He's he's so well prepared um, that it is is just amazing with all the stuff that's going on in his in his earpiece to still be able to take in all the information that's coming in on the video printer to then have a chat with us and you know have the the banter with us that, that he had and take the Mickey out of us like he did do um, it was incredible and on his to, to be fair on his screen he's only got two monitors uh, so he's got he's got a, a copy of the video printer that, that you see on the television he's got the video printer that comes up in front of him uh, and he has a um uh, a tv screen which uh, has a set of buttons alongside it and he can so we're watching four separate games if anything happens in one of our games jeff can just press a switch and it will flick to our game and he'll get to see the replay of the goals or the incidents that have just taken place um and that's the only two monitors he's got so he's got the 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 screen with the the video printer on, and he's got a television screen so he can see what we're seeing um, for the replays that happen when we shout that a goal's gone in or somebody's got a red card, all that that kind of stuff. So he hasn't got a million monitors, but he's incredible at taking in incredible amounts of information. You appeared, appeared on the TV show. How how Harry Hero? Do you enjoy that? Yeah, we did two series of Harry's Heroes. Um, it was a fantastic experience, I've got to say. We did, uh, I think, 12 weeks uh, in the first series um, where we kind of went from being, you know, very unfit, slightly porky footballers. Uh, and 12 weeks later, we'd all kind of trained quite a bit, and lost quite a lot of weight uh, and ended up um, beating Germany 4-2 in the uh, in the game that, uh, that culminated in the series. And, uh, and then Germany wanted a rematch, so uh, so we had to go to Germany to play a rematch with them in the second series. We we went around Europe. We had time in Paris and uh, out in Italy and San Marino and, and spent time in Germany before we played the, the rematch there and, and managed to win that game as well. So uh, it was two brilliant series and uh, we had a lot of fun filming it. Do you like social media? Because you seem to get yourself in trouble on Twitter quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I seem to get myself in trouble. Well, I, normally when I get myself in trouble, it's because like people like Gary Lineker and Piers Morgan are, are, are arguing the opposite of what I'm saying. 
Well, I can honestly tell you, if I'm on the opposite end of an argument to Piers Morgan, that's a very comfortable position that I'm happy to be in and will <laughs> gladly take for the rest of my life. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, if, if, I, if he's disagreeing with me, I know I'm doing something right. What are you planning for next year and the year ahead? Um, that's a good question. I don't really do planning, um, if I'm honest. Uh, I, I live kind of day to day, week to week. Um, I uh, I now do a little bit of TV work for a company out in um, well the, the company has the broadcast rights for the Bundesliga and the Premier League out in Indonesia. They have a studio up in London, so I do some work for them now, uh, and I do um, a lot of after dinner speaking. Uh, so I, I go out and try and entertain people with uh, stories about my career, and um, that's kind of what I and I play lots of golf. Um, so yeah, I guess my my one ambition in life still is to is to become a scratch golfer. I just want to ask Jimmy ask one one question, Matt. So sure. looking at this this season, the Premier League, who do you think are favourites, and who do you think is going to win? Um, who are favourites? Uh, I would say probably. Uh, I think the top three will will end up being Man City, Liverpool, and Chelsea. Um, I'm not sure in what particular order. Um, they will come in. But I, I would say favourites at this stage of the season, I guess I guess Liverpool haven't been beaten yet. So that, that kind of would make them um, pretty strong contenders. Uh, I, I think Chelsea and Man City, uh, Chelsea, Man City, Liverpool, I don't think there's a huge amount in them. I think perhaps Man City and Liverpool may be just a touch stronger squad-wise than Chelsea in terms of the, the quality of depth. Um, but it's it's going to be an interesting season and I think it's possible that any one of those three could win it. And what about your thoughts on Man United? Because one week they seem to be amazing, the next week they seem to be terrible. It's, yeah. It's it's really inconsistent. What, what are your thoughts on Man United and, and, and Oli? Yeah, I think it is inconsistent um, uh, and I think um, I think they have some amazingly talented footballers in that squad. Um I just think that Oli is a, he's only a decent manager. You know, for a club of Manchester United's stature and size, I think they need an exceptional manager. Uh, and I don't think Oli is an exceptional manager. I, I think he's just a, a decent manager. I would just like to say a big thank you again to everyone who listens to our podcast. We really appreciate it. Please continue to leave reviews and pass our podcast on to your friends and family. Thank you so much, Matt, for taking the time to chat with us today. We really appre- we really enjoyed speaking with you, and it means so much to us as a school to be able to have the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure, and good luck with the, the rest of the podcast. I hope you get some much more famous guests than me on in the future. Thank you. So, boys, another podcast over. How did you find that, Tom? Did you enjoy speaking to Matt? Yeah, I found it very interesting, and... I enjoyed it how like um he he explained about his past because uh he seems very proud about it. So yeah, it was very interesting to speak to. Avatar, did you enjoy speaking to Matt? Uh yes, it was good though. And um he talked about his life and he talked about um about his um the first cup in Southampton actually is proper good talk about over the years in the Premier League actually is proper good. Yeah, so really good. So thank you so much for joining us, Matt. And well done, boys, on another great episode. 
And thank you so much for listening to the TWS Sports Podcast. And we will see you next week. Okay, see you soon. Yeah, see you soon. Thank you so much to everyone who listens to our podcast. Please could you leave us a review if you listen via Apple Podcast. This takes less than a minute to do, but it really helps to go our podcast and get us noticed. So as soon as this episode is finished, make sure you leave that us that review. Thank you. Please go and follow us on social media on our Facebook group. We'll be hosting a regular sports quiz, give you updates about our podcast and even have prize giveaways. Just search TWS Sports Podcast on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter to follow us. Thank you. The TWS Sports Podcast combines autism and sport. This unique podcast is hosted by children with autism, and each week they interview famous sportsmen and women from around the world. The TWS Sports Podcast takes you deep into the sports star's career, their highs and lows, what happens away from the field of play, and so much more. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. The TWS Sports Podcast, where autism and sports combine. Sports Social Podcast Network.